ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. I was trying to mix it up this this time. I was going to say. I saw your face. I was like, you got him. 200 and what, five episodes? And 200, this is 206. Instead of saying everybody, you say ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I just want to see how you'd react. Just keeping me on my toes. Yep. I, I don't I do not do it when you think I would do it. <laughs> 200, I'm going to yeah, switch I it Yeah, I definitely up. Not, was expecting it at 150, maybe mm. 175. Nope. nope. 206. 206. <laughs> so, today, we are happy to announce that this is another... ACP accredited episode. So what that means is if you all listening are freece.com members and you have unlimited membership to their platform, if you listen to this episode and you feel like it was helpful, go to the link in the show notes that will take you to freece's website and you will do a post activity test, ace that and get those questions right. And then you will get one hour of continuing education that goes for pharmacists and nurses. And, uh, if you are not a freece.com unlimited member, make sure that you check out all of their content and definitely, uh, you know, debate whether or not it's worth uh, joining up and getting that unlimited membership. And, and I'll go ahead and settle it for you. It is. So there's a discount code in the show notes as well you can use and uh, get yourself a little percentage off of the, the, the annual cost. Um, you'll get access to all of our episodes plus all of their content. So definitely check them out if you're not already a member. Big thanks to freece.com for partnering with us again. And um, today, the episode, we haven't, I don't think we've actually done a full episode just on this topic, do you? Do you? I should have looked, but I didn't. You didn't. I'm going to go ahead and assume what we didn't. And I so, actually don't think we have. Yeah. Uh, it, it's comorbid with a lot of stuff we've talked about. Yeah, that's usually what it is, like the comorbidity stuff. But we're going to be talking about generalized anxiety disorder, um, specifically in adults. But uh, we're going to kind of go through some background information. We'll go through the pharmacotherapy, and we'll kind of go through the this algorithm that um, David Osser from uh, Harvard Medical um, you know, came up with, him and his team came up with, they do a lot of different algorithms for um, psychopharmacology. And so we're going to go through his algorithm and kind of discuss it. Yeah, so, I, th- I think it's a really good one too. So, oh, and before we get going, the, the password for the post-activity test is worry, W-O-R-R-Y, all capital letters. There you go, before I forget to say it. Um, yeah, as with all things with neurology, there's not a whole lot of consensus i should say some things with neurology especially psych there's not a whole lot of consensus um, once you get past like the first line options so with general anxiety disorder we're going to talk through what we think is a good evidence-based treatment algorithm based on data not just our opinion yes based on data (laughs) um which is technically you know another doctor's or another group of doctors opinions based on the data Uh, but we tend to agree with it and we think they have good reasons for them Uh, but past the first line option well, even once you just get to second line, there's disagreement amongst guidelines about what is like the best thing to do. I would even argue there's a lot of disagreement even between first line yes. stuff as far as the, the new data. Class-wise and... here, maybe not, but as far as which ones would be like the first, well, I'll say it, SSRI to use. Yes, there is there is discrepancies there. And you know, part of that, you, you might say, well, why do we use an algorithmic approach in you know a, a disease state like this? Um, not everybody does, and it, it's just intended to give some guidance for the most part. Um, they've even studied, like with clinicians, using an algorithmic approach to treatment versus not, and they didn't find a whole lot of difference actually in the the um, clinical decision-making habits if they just handed somebody an algorithm versus the clinicians who weren't, but they did if the clinicians were um, inf- well-informed on the algorithm and, and kind of exactly how to use it. And they did see um, different prescribing habits that they deemed to be better economically and then have better out- patient outcomes too. So I tend to like the approach, um, even though not everybody likes that uh, algorithm when it comes to this type of disease thing. I'm a big al- algorithm guy. Yes. My students make fun of me because I see algorithm so much, apparently. Is, is there another word for it? No. Flow chart? Flow chart sounds cool. But uh, no, I, they were, I can't remember what they were. They made a meme about me or something like that they had up in the class when I walked in. Something like that. And it was... <laughs> they have memes when you go into the classroom? Oh, but yeah, like they'll Photoshop my head in like a snake charm or stuff like that. You know, very disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> for those just, of you who don't know, because I don't know that we've ever said it, Mike has a... I don't even know how many. I'm going to go with 26 live snakes downstairs in his office. Is that a, a close to the number? Something like that. And multiple of them are extremely venomous. <laughs> Um, 
I don't know if we should say this on the podcast, but it's probably <laughs> it's, fine. They're yes. all they're all under lock and key and under you know. Yes, it is. We safe. have permitting for them, but so that, don't think I'm just going rogue. Oh yes, no, they're they're legal, but that's where the snake tremor comes from. I yeah, imagine. yeah, yeah. So, uh, cobras in general are one of my. You say favorite. we shouldn't say this is if you haven't like posted online. Oh no, no, it's all over Instagram. You can find it. I'm just <laughs> I'm joking, um, but no, uh, yeah, the cobras are my favorite, so they definitely thought that was funny but it some, somehow they came up with or we're talking about algorithm and that was associated with me and i was like oh okay i guess i say that word too much that was my point of that anyways that's funny it's i, I like that your students make fun of you i do too i tell them good you know it means they're comfortable yeah no it's good i, I definitely don't want to be some because as we were just talking about off the air i don't want to be this old like guy that they're just students feel bad for don't want to ever talk to like this dude he's too too far gone <laughs> Still just hanging on to you for the last last little bit. I was telling Mike that now that we're both sitting here in the studio drinking diet sodas <laughs> and we both have kids, then I think we are officially old. Go ahead and get the Velcro shoes going and I know. call it a day. So how are we going to assess, just natural transition here, how are we going to assess anxiety, you know, in like a primary care office or, you know, even screen someone for anxiety in the first place? Um, there's several different like scoring systems, just like with, with depression, you know, we have like the PHQ-9 and things like that. Uh, with anxiety specifically, we have the GAD-7 is a very popular one. Um, so the GAD-7 anxiety scale is just a simple, you know, questionnaire that they can go through. It asks things like feeling nervous anxious or on edge um and then you can either answer not at all several days which is equal to one point not at all zero points obviously um, several days uh, is one point more than half of the days two points and nearly uh every day is three points and so that's a scoring system they ask things like worrying too much about different things trouble relaxing becoming easily annoyed or irritable uh, feeling afraid as if something awful might happen and you basically calculate all, you know, add up all your points and zero to four means minimal or no anxiety. Five to nine is mild anxiety, 10 to 14, moderate, 15 to 21 is severe. So how they break it up. So it's good to get this at baseline. If you do sort of, obviously you're going to have to take a, you know, patient history and all that as well, but uh, this kind of gives you a baseline. So if you do decide to go forward with treatment, then you, when you give them the GAD-7 again at follow-up, you can kind of track the numbers and that can kind of help whether or not you're going to stay on course, augment, switch, whatever. And we'll talk about that more. And kind of uh, piggybacking off of that, I think it's important to kind of have at least a general idea of what the diagnostic criteria look like. So who are we even screening for this? Because everybody gets anxious, right? Um, and we're talking specifically about general anxiety disorder. There's a number of other anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. social anxiety disorder, for instance. Uh, but the treatment algorithm that we're going to talk about is specifically for GAD. But who are we screening? Um, I guess you could screen anybody with, you know, for instance, depression, because uh, anxiety disorders are um, very often comorbid with depression. Um, but specifically just for GAD, um, we might say individuals with excessive anxiety and worry that occur on more days than not for at least six months is kind of an easy way to say like they probably have GAD. Um, they need to be associated with somatic symptoms too. So um, muscle tension, irritability, maybe sleep disturbances, and they're not due to the effects of substances or a different medical condition, and they cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social occupation or other important areas of functioning. So they, they'll look at some specific things for DSM-5, and I should point out that, of course, DSM-5 and DSM-4 and the previous DSM criteria are all going to be different. The 4 and the 5 are actually pretty similar, but the 3 and before are significantly different. Um, and we kind of, the, the article we were going to talk about kind of addresses that. Um, but they focus a lot more on the somatic symptoms than they do kind of the other symptoms that the DSM-5 um, uh, looks at. And so some of the older drugs that were uh, the patient populations in the studies for those older drugs who were diagnosed based on the old DSM criteria, it's hard to generalize that to current, diagnose, current diagnostic um, practices, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Anyways, DSM-5 criteria, um, I won't go through all of it, but just a few things um, that you might see. It's probably more extensive than people realize. There's a lot. Um, and so I imagine, I don't know, I guess they have this in their head as they're evaluating a patient. I don't know if there's checklists, but... Um, oh, there's checklists. There's probably checklists. There is. So excessive anxiety and worry um, occurring more days than not, like I said, for at least six months. Um, the, the individual finds it difficult to control the worry, and they're associated with three or more of uh, six possible symptoms. Restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, being easily fatigued difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank, 
irritability, muscle tension, like I said, sleep disturbances, like I said. Um, the anxiety where your physical symptoms cause um, distress in those situations that I talked about, and the disturbance is not attributable to the psychological effect of substances. So all those things are what's going to um, give you a diagnosis of general anxiety disorder. I mentioned social anxiety disorder. There's also panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, and those would be kind of examples of possible um, things to look out for if it's not necessarily GAD. Even, you know, anorexia or dysmorphic disorder, like, you know, things with delusional beliefs like schizophrenia or delusional disorder, you know, there's so many other things that need to be kind of in the back of your mind for the differential diagnosis. That's why psych in general is pretty difficult, even though we like to simplify, oh, I have anxiety, I like yeah. to simplify things. But, um, yeah, like Cole said, uh, it's very specific now, which I think we'll bring that back up as far as the discrepancy between like DSM-3 versus 5 when we talk about some of the agents. So I think some of these that you've been hearing about for as far as being FDA approved and like first line options, yeah, we'll talk about whether or not that really should be the case. But right. um, yeah, I, like, I love that they uh, use the term keyed up. That's a direct quote. That is a direct quote from up to date. Keyed up. I like that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> what would be an alternative? Psyched. Psyched. Yeah. Probably not the best Trust, to use yeah, the DSM-5 criteria. Or, or just feeling just on, let's see. Amped up? Amped up. That's a good one. Amped. Keyed up. Keyed. That is an interesting word. Yeah. To, to use in the DSM-5 criteria. And then um, you also mentioned assessing for other medical conditions, right? Like hyperthyroidism, things like that. I did mention that. So obviously, you know, you'd want to check labs and things like that for other differential diagnosis. Um, so yeah, we won't go into all the other nuances that involve anxiety. We're just going to focus strictly on generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so as far as, you know, the treatment options and, and all that, you know, the, the main class of medications that we typically think about are going to be SSRIs. That's like, I know that's what I was taught in, you know, when I was in school, that seems like the first line option and everybody's you know, sort of repertoire of, of uh, medications that we can utilize. There's actually only two that are FDA approved for the use in general you know, anxiety disorder. That's escitalopram and paroxetine, our favorite. Um, sertraline does also have a lot of, uh, or, well, there's three specifically randomized controlled trials that have been comparing it to placebo um, in you know, GAD as well. So even though it's not technically FDA approved for that, um, I think a lot of those studies were done after they had already lost the, the patent on their drugs, so they're not going to pay the money to get a new indication. And so it's sertraline would be another option that has, you know, some good evidence for it. Right. So really we would think of those three SSRIs, escitalopram, paroxetine, and sertraline. Mm -hmm. We have others, right? Fluoxetine, citalopram. Um, citalopram still has data around it, but it has concerns with... Um, primarily QT prolongation, specifically in the elderly above 40 milligrams. Um, and there's even some controversy around whether that's significant or not. But still, there's not really reason not to use escitalopram instead, which does not have those um, QT prolongation issues. At least to the same extent, yeah. At least to the same extent. So we'll, we'll talk about each of these kind of individually. But um, for the most part, when we say SSRIs are first line, if you're considering this algorithm then they're thinking of those three in particular. In particular. And um, for our friends across the pond, you might actually find some guidelines where SSRIs are not first line, where Lyrica, Pregabalin, is first line. Um, we'll talk about where we kind of fit that in, but specifically this is the United States where we would consider... Where, where, uh, which guideline were you referring to with Pregabalin? I think it's a British, British one. one, but I can't remember the specific one. So when we think of SSRIs, you know, we always have to consider all the different adverse effects. You know, the big one that we worry about is, you know, how it can affect weight. Um, it can affect GI um, or cause GI problems, specifically constipation. Uh, it can cause some fatigue. Um, some will cause issues with sexual dysfunction. And, you know, when we think about SSRIs, we kind of lump all those side effects in with, you know, each other. Like they say, oh, if, if kind of referred to as like a class effect. Um, paroxetine tends to have the most side effects out of all the SSRIs if you look at some of the data. Um, in particular, it's got the most effects at uh, the histamine 1 receptor. So as far as like the weight gain and the daytime sedation, things like that, um, 
you know, are it's going to usually be more prevalent um, with paroxetine, although there is sort of like a paradoxical um, reaction in some patients where it does um, cause like like almost like a stimulant effect in some patients, but it's much more common to cause drowsiness. And um, weight gain in particular is one of the big pushbacks that you get, I feel like, with these types of, you know, medications. Um, in particular, the authors of this algorithm um, do point out that there was a uh, an observational study that found uh, both talking about paroxetine um, and escitalopram, that both were associated with greater than 14% of patients gaining more than 7% of their body weight during the extended treatment of uh, an obsessive compulsive disorder uh, trial. Um, however, the uh, it was less than 5% with sertraline. Yeah. So, that was actually surprising to me because anecdotally, just hearing patients yeah. talk about it, I know paroxetine is associated with weight gain, but I would have put sertraline right up there with it, just hearing people talk about it. Zoloft, yeah. you know, you hear Zoloft, mm-hmm. you think weight gain. Um, but no, it sounds like between these three, it's the least. At least in that one study. At least but, in that one study. And they, they may have been using bigger doses because it was OCD. Yeah. I, you know, that's just the study they happened to quote. Right. I think the big thing is to tell patients that it's not the end of the world, that there's nothing they can do to combat that or anything like that. Right. If Yeah. Um, and with the proxetine, you mentioned the um, kind of being stimulating in, in some way. And that's important to point out because um, though it causes sedation, if they have an underlying sleep issue as well, it's not necessarily going to help that. It might actually cause a problem there, even though it's the most sedating for this antihistamine response. Yeah. Proxetine also has the most um, CYP450 interactions um, compared at least to escitalopram and sertraline. And uh, because it's got the shortest half-life as well, the risk of like discontinuation symptoms, if the patient just abruptly stops it, it's going to be highest with proxetine as well. And, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with maybe a younger patient population um, with this particular disease state. And so it is the only one that if we're going by the old pregnancy categories or risk categories, paroxetine was the only one that was considered a D. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that they saw an increased uh, rate of cardiac septal defects with with proxetine. And so if it's a you know patient of childbearing age, maybe go with a different option anyway. Yeah. Our, our usual um, guidance is to not use proxetine and just go with escitalopram or sertraline, but yeah. it is FDA approved. So just throw that out there. Not just for pregnancy, but yeah, it, it, if I had to choose a first line of these three, I, I, it's kind of similar to depression. I feel like I'm going sertraline. With, with, yeah. And then maybe escitalopram second. Yeah. I think both of those are fine. Um, also with elderly patients, um, well, I guess with these in general, what can you expect as far as response? It's, mixed but maybe somewhere between a 30 to 50 percent remission rate um with their first ssri which uh, isn't terrible but not fantastic especially when you consider placebo is pretty high like close to 30 percent um and then with the elderly patients um the evidence with them is a little more limited uh sertraline if you talk to geriatric folks they tend to like sertraline for older people uh, there was a small trial looking at sertraline versus buspirone in elderly patients, and buspirone was actually a little bit better uh, with GAD. It was a small study. Um, and then there's another small study with Lexapro compared to placebo um, showing that it was better than placebo, but there's not a whole lot of data with, with elderly folks. Um, and the, the other thing, this is actually something that I'm glad that uh, – this I found this article or this interview basically the the lead author on this this algorithm that we're going through um, Dr. David Osser uh, he did an interview with Psychopharmacology Institute basically talking about this algorithm mm-hmm. and all that and they asked him specifically about vorioxetine and velazodone like our our newer SSRIs mm-hmm. that also have additional activity other specific because yeah, this receptors. came out in like 2015 this algorithm or something uh, it was a few I years say ago 18. But I could be wrong. Six, 16. 2016. 16. Okay. So you were closer. You win. Um, and so my thought was maybe that would be, you know, those would be better options because we sometimes see better um, resolution of symptoms and whatnot with those newer agents compared to the OSSRIs because of that serotonin um, activity at specific receptors. Um Turns out I wasn't the only one that was considering that. So I thought I was ahead of my ahead of my time. But it turns out the company that makes Vortioxetine actually was doing several studies um, looking specifically at generalized anxiety disorder as well. And the first uh, you know study that they did did show a positive effect. Um, it was from 2012. But then the next three, and they were all the three large placebo-controlled trials that went followed that all. Um, negative, you know, results, no, no difference between placebo and vortioxetine. Same thing with velazodone. And so, um, basically they did, uh, 
three studies, one showed promise and, and showed, you know, efficacy. And then the next two after that showed no difference in placebo. Very, very strange. Yeah. I've, that really was surprising. And those were sponsored by the mm-hmm. companies. Plus, plus they had, uh, you know, they do typically, you know, a lot of patients have less you know, side effects, especially like um, vortioxetine and escitalopram have been head, uh, compared head-to-head from a sexual dysfunction standpoint, and yeah. vortioxetine was better. Um, so, that, you know, sometimes people won't want to jump on those, but they're not approved for that, and that's why. Then neither company went after um, that indication, and they're so expensive comparatively. So I was wondering, with this being a few years old, if there was anything new that we were going to, that might pop through, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems mm-hmm. like these three are still going to be. This interview wasn't too long ago. The first line. Um, that's very interesting. So a few more things with SSRIs. Um, they, so the surgery doses, as you know, ranges, uh, 50, 25 to 200 milligrams. Escitalopram, 10 and 20 milligrams. They haven't really demonstrated a dose response relationship with any SSRI. There's not any research comparing the higher doses to staying on the lower doses for a longer amount of time. So do with that what you will. Um, you're obviously going to see increased side effects with the higher doses. And we'll talk about that with some of the other drug classes too, how with the higher dose, they don't necessarily see, they don't have proof that it's going to work much better. Um, but then how long do you stay on these? And how long can you, how long until you can expect a response? Um, Good dep- question, Cole. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so in depression, you know, with SSRIs, we generally say something along the lines of six to eight weeks for an adequate trial of one of these. So, we don't really know. It varies between person to person. Six to eight weeks is not a, a, a bad thing to say. Some studies with Lexapro found that if a response commences within two weeks and they determine, they classify a response as being a 20% improvement in the Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale score, then the prognosis for remission is good. So if you see a response in the first two weeks, that's a good thing. But if there's no response in the first two weeks, the initial dose should be increased. And if there's no response by four weeks, uh, one made analysis suggests that the patient is unlikely to respond to Lexapro. So assuming that they've been adherent and there's no other uh, reason to suspect that they like have um, a metabolism situation, like they're an ultra rapid metabolizer of Lexapro uh, and that they had an adequate trial of the medication, that this should be considered a trial and failure of Lexapro just in four weeks, which is shorter than uh, we usually yeah. think of with SSRI. So I think that's an important point. Yeah. I th- that's how I always think about it in my own head is like with depression, I'm going to have to treat longer to see if the, Medication is going to be effective, but anxiety, I should be getting a response a little bit quicker, which is nice. Um, nice. So the other thing that will come up sometimes is like the potential for a bleed risk. Um, So you'll see um, that warning pop up, especially if patients are on, you know, other things like NSAIDs that could lead to an upper GI uh, bleed or anticoagulants and antiplatelets, things like that. I think we've talked about this before, but basically the, the thought process is that Platelets store serotonin as one of their signaling, you know, mediators that uh, starts the process and signals other platelets to start the process of um, aggregation. And so they are not capable of actually producing their own serotonin. They get it from their environment and store it in their dense granule. And so the same mechanism in which you're blocking the reuptake of serotonin, um, you know, presynaptically and all that, you are also blocking it from getting upticked into the uh, up uptook into the. Uh, that's not a real word, I don't think. I'll have to look look at that later. Uptaken? Uptaken? I don't know. Taken up? Somebody somebody that's Taken up. I was better at math than grammar. Just going to throw that out there. That's what my mom told me. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you're blocking the the uptake. There we go. The uptake of... uh, of of serotonin into that platelet to begin with but they also still have von Willebrand factor and all these other things that can signal so it's not like they're incapable of aggregating at that point it just right. can potentially increase the bleed risk and really this the studies and meta-analyses and things that have kind of looked at this once you if you add some sort of an acid suppression agent you don't that risk goes away so if you're really worried about it do an h2 or ppi and call it a day but it's not usually something we worry about clinically right um, a few other things. So we've talked about it before and Mike already mentioned it, but sexual side effects, sexual dysfunction, be sure to mention that. Um, I, it, I think what it's important to note is that if it happens, it's not likely to remit with time. So it's not going to go away. So if that is a issue for a patient that they are not going to be able to tolerate, that's probably a failure of, of that medication. Um, also, suicidal ideation risk for patients younger than 25 years old, especially teenagers, um, I think there's a box warning, right? All these would have box warnings. All these warnings. would have. So just be aware of that. 
Um, also, we didn't talk about it off the top, but um, medication therapy, we're, we're pharmacists and we're going to talk about that. Um, but just as important, if not more important, is um, psychosocial options and factors that need to uh, play a part. This algorithm that we're going to talk about is assuming that those have been exhausted or maybe are being used in conjunction with the medication. There's my caveat for that. Um, the article also highlights the importance of making sure that um, because there are, are so many side effects, even with what we generally consider as being safe drugs, SSRIs, um, and because there's such a high placebo response in anxiety studies, just like depression studies and other psychiatric studies, do your due diligence to make sure or try to make sure that whatever apparent response you're getting to an SSRI, it wasn't placebo or related to some something else, um, but especially placebo. There's, I don't really know of a great way to do it. The way that they recommend in the article is it would if you're unsure, um, it would be reasonable to do a trial off the medication and see if you know their symptoms come back. Um, if they have um, good support and observation, I guess that's an option. Um, but it does seem like it's extremely difficult to mm. know. But it, it's important because, well, we'll talk about partial responses, but you're going to keep them on it for you know six to twelve months, like they recommend. You want to make sure that it's uh, they're getting a response because of the medicine and not because of a placebo response. Yeah, and if you guys are wondering, I know we've already mentioned the article and we keep saying that, but I'll link it in the show notes too, just because I know inevitably we're going to have a few people saying like this article you kept referring to. Where is it? <laughs> where is that thing? <laughs> so I know yeah. you said the name of it and the author and the release date, but I was but also what told not to article? Google to search for literature. <laughs> and I, I looked all that up in PubMed and I couldn't find it because you didn't mention any mesh terms. <laughs> My mesh terms were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we'll, uh, we'll link it so you guys can find it. Yes. All right. So SSRIs and we are going to come back at the end and kind of like summarize all this in front, like as far as like an actual flow chart or algorithm or whatever you want to call it. But the other class that we often think of is the SNRIs. So serotonin, norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors. The the two that are actually FDA approved are venlafaxine and duloxetine. So they're FDA approved for generalized anxiety disorder specifically. Um, of the two of those, the authors basically point out that venlafaxine seems to, um, you know, result in the more adverse effects, discontinuation of the medication because of adverse effects. Um, and so they they kind of automatically classify venlafaxine as at least a second-line agent, whereas duloxetine, they kind of push that as a, you could actually consider that as being yep. an option for first-line. Um, they actually said that uh, duloxetine was found to have significantly lower rates of sexual uh, side effects compared to paroxetine specifically, um, although it was higher than placebo. So uh, kind of what we would expect when you're dealing with the serotonin and norepinephrine, probably a little bit less of those sexual dysfunction, especially compared to paroxetine. And what was surprising to me is that Effexor seems to have similar sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. to some of the other SSRIs. I would have thought that it would have less just because it's an SNRI, but it seems like duloxetine is less as well. Yeah. Um, it does mention, though, that uh, um, liver abnormalities can happen, although that's usually a small risk um, that we should assess baseline liver function if possible. Um, that seems pretty pretty easy to accomplish, but something to at least keep in the back of your mind. Um, you know, the as far as dosing goes for duloxetine, usually 60 to 120 milligrams, um, which is oftentimes 60 milligrams twice a day, uh, is kind of in like the, you know, the established max dose. Um, there's not been any ad advantage to higher doses that have been seen in this disease state. Um, the GAD symptoms that are earliest to kind of respond um, include like the anxious mood part of it and muscle, muscle tension in particular. Um, the symptoms that are going to be most likely to respond last um, would be like the insomnia piece and then the um, gastrointestinal or autonomic symptoms um, that could also be due to the actual drug and not just the, the condition either. So those are kind of hard to, um, you know, navigate. But insomnia is a big one, I think, with anxiety. It is, yes. Um, and we think of duloxetine as being um, like a central... It, it's used frequently as kind of like a central acting um, analgesic pain agent for certain conditions like fibromyalgia or other musculoskeletal disorders. Um, this article points out that there was a, a meta-analysis of five trials showing that the analgesic effects of Cymbalta in depressed patients were clinically insignificant, um, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. But they did exclude patients who had comorbid fibromyalgia and other musculoskeletal disorders, which I which is kind of the only place that I 
feel like I would see it used, but I guess yeah, maybe osteoarthritis of the knee, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird. So I'm so not sure like what little, else. They, I don't know what they're talking like about. Like just depressed people who have other pain. They were saying <laughs> just arbitrary pain. That's maybe. what I'm, I'm like. I I'm, think that's what it's more like chronic pain versus like specifically right. like neuralgia or right. some type of pain that we typically use this for. Right. So, so that doesn't say that it doesn't work there. It's just yeah. It's not going to cut down their pain if that's driving some of their anxiety. I yeah, guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the two. And, and also remember because of the norepinephrine activity, we also have to worry about blood pressure and venlafaxine 10, especially at the, as the dose increases, you start getting above 150 milligrams. The effects of norepinephrine are going to be more so than serotonin. Um, and so it starts off with more serotonin activity and then sort of like shifts over to norepinephrine as you get higher in the dose. And that's with both of these. But once you start having more of that norepinephrine activity, you're definitely going to have to worry more about the blood pressure. And so if your patient has uncontrolled hypertension, um, you know, you just do a little bit more monitoring. Hopefully you just give you a better reason to get their blood pressure under control as well. But uh, deloxetine may be a little bit better option than venlafaxine for that reason too. That's S- NRIs. So if you're following the um, algorithm, we've diagnosed a patient with DSM-5. Technically, second, you're supposed to evaluate other comorbidities. We're actually going to talk about that at the end. Um, but then it asks if the patient has had an adequate trial of an SSRI. So that's why we talked about SSRIs. Um, and now we're going, and then also there's the option to do duloxetine. So now we're going to talk about some other options that can be considered. So, um, First, we'll talk about buspirone, which is one that you've probably heard a fair amount of with when it comes to anxiety specifically, because I think that's the only thing it's approved for. Um, so it received an FDA approval as a monotherapy agent for anxiety in 1986, and that was when they were using the DSM-3 criteria. So we talked about kind of the discrepancies there, so do with that what you will. Um, Basically, I mean, a lot of the patients that were in those studies that may not have... They might not have met qualified. criteria for what we would currently be diagnosing as general anxiety disorder. Yeah. Um, a meta analysis in 92 of eight placebo controlled trials involving buspirone um, doses 15 to 60 milligrams daily found that 30 milligrams was kind of the sweet spot. Um, it was found very useful in a placebo controlled trial, um, interestingly, in recently abstinent anxious alcoholic patients. Um, at the time, uh, about half of them met DSM 3 criteria for general anxiety disorder. Um, that was a higher dose of 50 milligrams a day. So, interesting. Getting off of alcohol. Maybe some boost per room. Um, the advantages that kind of we generally think of with boost per is that it's a clean drug. Mm -hmm. So I think of it as a weaker alternative to a benzo. Um, it doesn't have abuse potential, a good side effect profile, low, low risk for overdose toxicity. It, it does have a good side effect profile. Yeah, what, what I said. No, you, you, I think you said it, but it just, I want to make sure oh, it was clear. Yes, it has a good side effect yeah. profile. Um, there's no issues with cognitive or cognitive. Um, issues or psychomotor performance, no sexual side effects. So all of that has been very good. Um, however, there's only one placebo-controlled trial for to confirm boost efficacy as monotherapy with DSM-4 criteria and general anxiety disorder. So, and we'll talk a little more about boost for like augmentation and stuff like that, but I don't know. I, the, the article is not big on it. Um, I actually tend to not mind it myself. I, I never, only because like, Maybe this isn't the best thought process, but I know it ha there's such a placebo effect that if it was like somebody with really like borderline mild general anxiety disorder and maybe they didn't want to deal with the side effects of the other ones, I might be like, yeah, maybe we'll just do boost prone and see what happens for a little bit. You know, I think that, that would be my yeah thing too. If it's mild and the side effects are the big thing that they're not wanting to deal with. Right. Then maybe, but I feel like I'm not saying it'd be there from an efficacy standpoint or yeah. anything like that, but that's what I think just be, being realistic about the efficacy versus right. like, I know like when I was in school, I was taught abuse bar, you know, yeah. that's, that's a good option. Abuse burn is a good option for, for anxiety specifically. And it's like, mm, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was actually a comparison study that looked at, uh, venlafaxine. I mean, granted this was spon this, a study sponsored by the manufacturer of venlafaxine, but, um, it compared venlafaxine to buspirone, um, and, uh, placebo. It was no better. So buspirone in that study was no better than placebo in some of the measures and in others, it was, um, shown to be inferior to venlafaxine. So, it's one of those things that based on the new DSM-5 criteria, um, maybe this shouldn't be a first-line option. But right. just like Cole said, though, it's the for all the you know the benefits of the lack of side effects and all those things, it's still a lot of clinicians utilize this. It would be a very specific subset of patients. Maybe somebody who, like, 
for instance, only wants to do natural things because they don't want to do anything with like side, you know, somebody who's just extremely hesitant about medication. This is all natural. Well, you know, but it's, it's, we can, it's just so mild and you know, it's not, it's an easy one to sell. Yeah. But yeah, I get that, that you might be doing a disservice if, if it's not going to be as effective as some of the other things. You also got to think of the actual dosing too. It's 30 milligrams a day, but it's usually two to three times a day is what like to get that total dose. So it's not the most convenient thing either compared to like the once a day SSRIs. Right. So, all right, where are we at so far? We've done SSRIs, we've talked about SNRIs, and we've talked about our azapurine, uh, or azapurone, um, buspirone. Buspirone, yep. So, what's next, Cole? Hydroxazine. Adorex, as it were. We've all seen this one. And yes. I've, I've, what's interesting about this is I feel like everybody just assumes, oh, it's perfect. It's got H1 blocking properties, to, it's an antihistamine, it's going to cause fatigue, and that's where, you know, that's why it's probably the most, like, potent um, you know, anti, anti uh, antihistamine histamine. first generation, but uh, we could probably use Benadryl or something along those lines as well. It's kind of unique about hydroxazine is yes, it does obviously block the histamine receptor, but it actually has mild five um, HT two receptor blocking effects as well. So if you remember from like dealing with schizophrenia or even depression for a lot of um, you know patients, if we're thinking about like some of the the medicinal chemistry behind it, 5-HT or serotonin receptor um, 2A specifically, we typically want to block that uh, activity. And when we do that, we usually can cut down on anxiety and some of those things that can be associated along with depression. Um, and so this has some of that um, 5-HT, 5-HT uh, 2 receptor blocking effects already built in, which is probably why specifically hydroxazine has been the one that they've kind of looked at. There's There's been three placebo-controlled um, studies that have looked at 50 milligrams of hydroxazine in this patient population specifically. Um, you know, it also has a very low abuse potential. However, you know, the sedation is usually a, big, a pretty big deal for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be problematic. Um, it does, you know, it doesn't have a, any sexual side effects that we're worried about. Um, but it's, you know, there's an argument to be made that it could be a potential alternative to SSRIs, even as first line. Kind of like you were saying, Cole, like with if somebody who doesn't want to be on a, a, a quote unquote psych med because they're worried about, you know, all these things they've heard, the, the box warnings, whatever, this may be a good alternative. I would actually probably use this more quicker than I would Beast Bar myself. Yeah, I think I actually, I think I probably would too. And so Don't copy me, Cole. We see it, we see it used a lot. Well, I probably use it more broadly. I yeah. probably use it more broadly. So we see it a lot as a PRN med. Um, and I feel like I only really see it prescribed by psychiatrists myself. Um, I don't see it too much in the primary care realm, but it, it really is a reasonable option. Um, and there's not any benefit with like depression or anything. I think that's no. the other big thing with this one is it's only with strictly anxiety. It's only for anxiety. So this is another one of those that kind of feels nice as an alternative to like benzos if somebody wants a PRN sort of situation because it's rapid onset um, and they get they get the kind of sedating feeling and so they can they feel working and that can be comforting that sort of thing um but interestingly there's some there's some data to say that there's kind of a cumulative effect and taking it consistently may actually produce better responses Mm -hmm. um i'd imagine that the uh sedation would be dose limiting if it has the sedation that benadryl does i could not take this i would be zonked i can't take a benadryl or i'll be asleep for four days me too but listen to this in a cochrane review comparing hydroxazine to other anxiolytic agents like benzos and boosterone, it was found to be equivalent in tolerability, efficacy, um, uh, and acceptability among the patients. So, I don't know if it's a similar like you know benzos are sedating as well. But if it's a similar tolerability to boosterone, and very like, interesting. And like you said, like over time, the the one study in particular that they quote um, brings up the fact that over the twelve weeks, you know, the comparison of placebo, the benzos, and you know, the difference of hydroxazine. Com- like the difference between hydroxine and placebo gradually enlarged, just like you were saying. So it's almost like you almost have to stay on it a little bit longer to right. see the full effects. And you could still get some benefit from taking it PRN. And so if I'm if I've got a patient who say wants a benzo, this seems like a reasonable thing to throw at them to mm-hmm. prevent that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I I don't mind hydroxazine. Mm-mm. I think it's a good. I've, I've I've actually used this one in some of the patients that I've seen personally. I have a bad feeling about. I used to have a bad feeling about it, only because like if somebody's taking Benadryl every day, I'm like, you don't need to take Benadryl every day. Like, stop taking Benadryl every mm-hmm. day. But this is different than that. It it is well, and I think too, it's one of those things that when they're taking Benadryl every day, it's usually 
for sleep. Uh, well, and it's on their own. Like, no one's monitoring yes. that yeah. or, like, said, so this is somebody who've actually, like, established this is what is wrong. Not right. just, I have some insomnia because I look at my iPad before I go to sleep. Right. I'm going to take Zequil. Right. So I think that's the other piece of it. I'd imagine that the data that we have is not necessarily in patients over 65. Still in patients over 65, I'd imagine it's a beer's drug, just yeah. like Benadryl, that you'd want to be very cautious with. But mm -hmm. in other patients, go for it. Go for it. Pregabalin? Yeah. You brought that one up with the guidelines. Yeah. So um, Lyrica Pregabalin is approved throughout Europe um, for treating general anxiety disorder. And um, it's widely used there. It's rec recommended in international guidelines. It's not FDA approved in the U.S. for generalized anxiety disorder. It is for a number of other things uh, related to um, neuropathy and what else is it FDA approved for? Fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, stuff like that. Nerve pain, centrally active pain. Um but it was submitted for approval, I think, twice for generalized anxiety disorder, and it wasn't approved. Um, we're not exactly sure why. Yeah, they never disclosed it. They didn't thing. disclose it, um, and they're not required to, but they, this article postulates that it could be because the effect size of the, I think it was the HAMA score that they were looking at in the trials that they submitted was not really significant, not significant, as significant as they'd like to see, and that's why they um, declined it. But it's widely used for... Um, anxiety, and so I think that we can trust reasonably that it would be effective. And comparing it to like SSRIs, it usually has a more rapid onset of you know action and basically relief of symptoms, mm -hmm. and it seems to be more beneficial when it comes to sleep as well. Right, which is like the last you know benefit or the last symptom that you see resolved with SSRIs, SNRIs. It's the sleep, mm -hmm. and I mentioned that there isn't a dose response relationship with SSRIs. There does seem to be with pregabalin, um, where doses over three hundred milligrams per day are more effective. And I think that's hard too because this is a controlled substance. Yes. And there's there there are the pharmacists out there, no offense guys, who literally can't wait to tell someone they can't get a controlled substance for whatever reason. Yeah. Um I've never understood that, but you know, it's neither here nor there. And uh I think that can definitely throw in when you see people see three hundred milligrams, you know, and or multiple times, you know, whatever, that's gonna automatically maybe for some people trigger some red flags just up, be, but just keep in mind they'll just be red flags yeah but the dosing it is those higher doses that have been shown to be efficacious but um and regardless of whether it has a high abuse potential or not um it is it's going to make it could affect adherence anytime you have to have a controlled substance mm -hmm. and go through the process and limited refills with limited time frame to fill it you're you're always going to have issues and truthfully could probably create some anxiety so be aware of that um i imagine it's some sort of control in the other countries but i didn't see anything about that i have never looked it's a, look i think it's a five here schedule five yeah so it just it, it that can be frustrating but apart from that it still has um it still has a lot of benefits but side effect wise it does have some side effects related to what you would think of with controlled substances uh, primarily somnolence dizziness um uh, it was actually studied in elderly patients in one study um, and, and seems to be effective. But for those reasons, use caution. One patient did fall and had a fracture in that study, for example. So, yeah. And, you know, with some payers and whatnot, you may get kind of a, you know, an error message with or, or a, a denial, I should say, for pregabalin. They want you to use gabapentin or something like that first. Um, gabapentin is not necessarily indicated for this either. And the, the studies aren't nearly as robust with gabapentin. There's one um, that looked at gabapentin, 300 and 900 milligrams compared to placebo for anxiety um, in patients who are breast cancer survivors. Um, both doses in there were, were shown to be significant improvements in anxiety symptoms compared to placebo. Um, specifically, the you know the patients who had higher anxiety at baseline were the ones that got the most benefit, which we kind of would expect. Um, same thing with um, like uh, one study that looked at basically like variety of chronic anxiety disorders, um, preoperative anxiety, things like that. Gabapentin also had some data there. So I think that, you know, it's one of those things that gabapentin could be potentially an option, but, um, you know, pregabalin is the one that has a little bit better data. So even though it's a control, which gabapentin is a control in some states, I think, but, um, you know, pregabalin is a control. It's probably better to go with that one. I feel like if you were having to make that swap, it might not fall at this point in the algorithm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I had, I worked with a psych pharmacist who felt very strongly about gabapentin, not basically not being used for like anything and how it's being abused because of all, the abuse potential all that kind of stuff um and it put a very sour taste in my mouth about gabapentin which it definitely has some concerns um but i've i've warmed up to it as time yeah, has gone because i mean like 
Sure, you can abuse it, I guess, but like there are people who abuse it. But there's people who abuse everything. I mean, yeah. There's people who abuse. Dexter well, she also thing. just didn't like all the off-label stuff that it was being used yeah. for, which people do throw it at. Yeah, yeah. A lot and I've of seen stuff. people on crazy high doses too. Right. But I mean, I'm definitely not somebody that's like gabapentin. Get right. it off. I think I it definitely has its place, yeah. especially like in this in the case of anxiety. If there is some sort of like comorbid like restless leg syndrome or you know things like that i think this is where pregabalin or or especially if there's any kind of fibromyalgia or yeah. neuropathy or something Seizures. Fun, yeah those are going to be really good options for those patients number of things um uh, next we have propion, which um i don't know the the guideline makes it sound like this is like a surprising option but i, I feel like that for a lot of people i talk to it is because that's so weird i know I, 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 I that's like, what i always think of it as like an antidepressant but it works for anxiety like so, that's because you and i've always talked about it like in regards to like depression with anxious distress on top yeah. of it bupropion has some good data there from like stardy and whatnot yeah but like i know when i was in school and i'm, I'm 90% sure this is true and not something I just have told myself in my head, but I'm almost positive I was taught like when I was in school like not to use bupropion in the case of anxiety. Interesting. Because of the norepinephrine, which is weird because... I guess I might have heard of that. It can be kind of activating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So it's kind of weird. But it's not like, what I've thought though, so I must know this from Star D, I guess. Well, is that why we, I think Well, we've why? done some episodes on this as well. Like, oh, by the way, July 2018, we, we did anxiety disorder. July this year? 2018. 2018. Four years ago. <laughs> that was the part I was missing. So, yeah, we're good. And who knows what we said on that podcast. I, I wouldn't know. even listen to it. It's probably nonsense. It's probably, it's probably the dumbest episode of all time. Um, I'm, a, I'm terrified to go back and listen to, like, episode 12. That's it's why I don't do it. probably so bad. Um, but bupropion, yeah, it's something that, for me anyway, I, I can almost tend to, like, my brain automatically goes to bupropion when I think anxiety, especially if it's depression with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some definitely some studies that have looked, you know, at this. There, there none of them are very big, but um, there have been some studies, like uh, one in particular. Um, looked at uh, only 24 outpatients in the outpatient setting, 18 to 64 years of age, that had uh, dsm 4 GAD criteria. Uh, they were randomized to get bupropion XL, 150 to 300, or escitalopram, 10 to 20 milligrams daily. Um, the main like efficacy that they were looking at was based on the improvement in the clinical global impression um, of improvement in the HAMA uh, scores. So anxiety symptoms basically improved in both groups, but the the difference in like the mean HAMA scores was was significantly um, better in favor of bupropion. Um, and so like if you look at that, the it produced an endpoint score of 5.3, whereas escitalopram um, had a score of 11.4. Yeah. So it's kind of like, um, you know, that's, I mean, obviously a very small study, but I was about to say the kicker there is that there were 24 patients. Yeah. So that, that's pretty but much, it, but like, it fits with my theory. So I does, like it. It does fit with your theory. But what I would say it fits with your theory better is a, a separate study looking at uh, berpropion versus sertraline in patients with depression with anxiety on top of that. And it shows similar efficacy to sertraline in a, in a trial with 700 patients. Um, so it does feel like it's, it's a stronger argument for me. And there was no, in that study you're talking about, there was no differences in activation side effects, so yeah. including insomnia, which is the big, I feel like still insomnia is one that I've heard a lot of students and stuff bring up to me about bupropion. Yeah. I think that's why they do the XL in the morning. Right. You know, but yeah, no difference between that and sertraline. Right. So to me, I, I definitely think of it more strongly for depression with comorbid anxiety, but it, it still fits kind of in. I, that's why I think this is a good place to have it personally. Mm-hmm. Um uh, here with just if it's straight GAD with no depression. Yeah, I, I definitely think yeah, when you know as more data comes out, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, this yeah. become a first line option. Yeah, because you don't have the sexual side effects or any of that stuff either. That's the big thing. Yeah, yeah. no sexual side effects, maybe even benefit. Good for you. I like it. Yeah. All right. So um, talk about some of the uh, augmentation options, and then we'll sum it all up once yeah. we uh, get to the end. So. Um, augmenting. So if you try an SSRI and you get a partial response, then you might want to consider adding something additional on. The big thing here is, is the partial response related to the medicine or is it placebo effect? Incredibly difficult to determine, but as best you can, it's recommended to determine because if it's not related to the SSRI, then you're going to add on an augmentation strategy, additional side effects, additional medicine, um, all that kind of stuff, additional costs, all that kind of stuff, non-adherence. Um, but let's say it is. So um, if we talked about boosterone for monotherapy, um, boosterone, interestingly, is not particularly impressive for augmentation. Um, it was looked at in the STAR-D kind of 
um, as an augmentation to citalopram. It was patients with depression who also had high levels of anxiety, and the remission rates were only 9% per, over 14 weeks. I will point out that depression with comorbid anxiety is more difficult to treat yeah. than anxiety itself. So, so do with that what you will. And, and just to kind of throw this out there, the, the, that same study when the patients who were started on citalopram that had high level of anxiety on top of their depression were switched to sertraline, much less likely to get remission to compared to the ones who were switched to buspirone. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm sorry, uh, bupropion yeah, or yeah, butrin. Yeah. So that's another just an example of still feels better than yeah, that. Yeah, be around being a good option for anxiety. You may hear second gen antipsychotics um, as an option for being added on, like quetiapine or piperazole. Um, there's some data around that, but this article would not fit that in right here. It would save it for a later line option. There's three placebo-controlled augmentation studies uh, with quetiapine. It's got the most, and that's the most data that we have. Yeah. For, um, so not a ton yeah. to go off of. Um, it would be reasonable to add hydroxyzine or pergabalin, so similar to kind of what we said were alternatives for first-line monotherapy um, could also be used for augmentation. There's not any augmentation trials with hydroxyzine, um, but an eight-week randomized um, trial of pergabalin did show that it was somewhat effective. So nothing super strong, but it just kind of makes sense that they could be have additive effects or at least have some additional effect. Mm-hmm. Um, benzos. So in regards to, you know, augmentation options, uh, benzos typically don't have a lot of data. Um, there's one randomized control trial that looked at clonazepam as an augmentation of, uh, sertraline specifically in this patient population. And, uh, clonazepam addition did seem to be effective and safe in that study. And so if we were going to consider one of the benzos, the only one we have data in this setting would be clonazepam as, as an augmentation option. I and think, probably a good monotherapy as well if you were going to use a benzo. Right. But notice that we haven't mentioned benzos to this point. So mm-hmm. this algorithm doesn't offer them as an alternative first-line monotherapy agent. Um, it doesn't even offer them as one of the first uh, augmentation options. It still reserves for kind of the last augmentation option. So, But they're widely prescribed, especially for patients with just general anxiety disorder. This is where this is like benzos bread and butter. This mm-hmm. is where they make their money. Um, alprazolam probably the most common. And that's the one that's actually FDA approved for anxiety. Yes. But it makes sense that a, which, which is, is good. I mean, you know, it has a fast onset and all that kind of stuff, but a longer acting one like clonazepam, one would be safer. Um, and two seems to have some, some data related to like augmentation, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's one, it's one of those things that if anything, it can be used potentially to help like decrease that breakthrough anxiety when you're first starting off treatment with an SSRI. So it's almost like you want to augment immediately and then stop the It was an, Yeah, that's an interesting recommendation. Kind of like a bridge, an mm-hmm. anxiety bridge. If you say, yeah, this SSRI I'm starting you on, similar to depression, yeah. might not take a really good effect for a few weeks. So here's four to six weeks of clonazepam, but you need to stop it. Um, and it does take several months to develop a physical dependence. And after several months of use, about 40% of patients on a benzo are physically dependent. Mm. Um, so I definitely would try to avoid doing it for more than about a month or so if you're bridging like that. Yeah. So Cole, you mentioned, uh, you know, quetiapine is an augmentation option, but he does, a, the algorithm does actually bring up, you know, other options as monotherapy as well. And quetiapine also has the most studies. Um, there's five uh, to be exact, um, that have been placebo controlled, randomized control trials, um, looking at quetiapine as monotherapy for GAD. Um, four of those five showed efficacy. So again, kind of a, you know, another, some data to support that use, but we do have to worry about the metabolic effects. We have to worry about the, the fatigue, um, in particular. So again, maybe an option for patients who are having trouble sleeping and things like that, but this is after we've gone through and exhausted other options. Right. Um, risperidone was, was found effective in two augmentation trials when they added it to an SSRI. Um, but we don't have like good monotherapy data. Um, Zeprazidone uh, was using like this one small placebo controlled study as monotherapy. Um, it was trending towards efficacy, but didn't really meet, you know, cross that threshold. Um, and uh, there was some other like cohorts and things like that they've looked at is like augmentation strategies. And it didn't seem to be all that effective specifically in this, this patient case or this uh, patient population. You'll see TCAs mentioned, which seem to have reasonable effectiveness. Um, but 
uh, a lot of them were in studied a long time ago with different DCM cri- DSM-5 criteria, and then they have a number of side effects. So we're definitely not putting them up there near the top, but they're, they, they may work. And aripiprazole, the other one that does have some data as an augmentation option, but um, you know, there's just two small studies, and they were six to eight weeks augmenting uh, with the aripiprazole. So there's a little bit of data there. I, I would say the quetiapine is probably your best bet as far as the amount of data supporting that decision with the second genetics mm-hmm. do you want to touch on some comorbid stuff yeah yeah and I'll, just to throw this out there because some of you are like maybe wondering about mirtazapine um it can help in regards to like the sleep onset and things like that at the lower doses because it has more affinity for histamine um specifically whenever it's at the lower doses however that then um, you know, it sort of shifts to uh, other areas and comes in and loses its affinity for histamine as the dose goes up. So that actual fatigue inducing effect goes away with the higher doses for a lot of patients. And it doesn't have any really great data specifically supporting its use in, in anxiety. So yeah. for now, I'd say hold off. And that's why they didn't include this in the algorithm. Yeah. But yeah, let's, uh, let's go over some, um, yeah, we'll kind of rapid fire these, but we encourage you to check the article out um, to see a little more specifics on them. But this is uh, comorbidities that might go along with general anxiety disorder where you might um, have to veer away from the algorithm, for instance. If they have sleep disturbances, we know that SSRIs and SNRIs can be an issue here. Um, so more sedating agents like hydroxyzine or pergabalin may be better. Uh, there were a couple of trials looking at trazodone added onto an SSRI that seemed to be helpful. Um, There's two placebo-controlled studies that support that. Two um uh, yeah, note that GABA agonists like pregabalin can cause rebound uh, effects uh, the night after discontinuation. But yeah, hydroxyzine or pregabalin could be an alternative here. For first-line options? For first-line. Yeah. Um, for neuropathic pain, obviously pregabalin, um, more so than an SSRI, would be probably a first-line option there if that's a comorbidity. Um, if the patient is of childbearing potential age, then um, benzos and paroxetine should be avoided. If you are going to use a benzo in this patient population, clonazepam also is the one that has the, if any, safety data. Um, Substance use disorders, avoid the controlled substances Mm -hmm. uh, if you can. If they have major depression, try treating with an SSRI. Second choice would be an SNRI, which which treats both, of course. And see, this is where I would actually go to bupropion first. Um, which oh, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know he, like. I know he likes. He's saying that SSR because they're both, they both can start from the same place. But he actually, this same author made a very compelling case for bupropion in that situation. It's true. In a different paper. It's true. Um, it came out after this one, so I'm going to go with that paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bipolar depression. Um, so for the depression, consider this is just treating bipolar depression. Lithium, lamotrigine, loracidone. Um, for the anxiety. Uh, consider pregabalin, hydroxyzine, or benzos. Um, the SSRIs are usually not recommended. And he makes a big point about that in that interview that he did, um, because a lot of people have gotten away from worrying about SSRIs in patients with bipolar depression. And he, yeah. he mentions how it can increase cyclicing and the, the different situ- you know, negative outcomes over like long term with SSRIs. So he says to get them on their mood stabilizer, like the lithium, lamotrigine, latuda, and then add on that pre or something as a, as a, or a benzo or hydroxyzine as an augmentation option for the anxiety specifically. Um, one thing he pointed out, though, is the quetiapine, which is indicated for bipolar disorder, and we know it has data is when GAD is what we're dealing with. When you put those two patient populations together, no benefit, mm-hmm. and, which I thought was super weird. And he said it was basically the results that surprised that, you know, everybody when they got them back. But for some reason, when those two are together, it didn't seem to help. But bipolar so, mania... Ketyping is actually preferred. Mm-hmm. There's bipolar depression that it causes. Yeah, the issue. depression, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Um, lastly, post traumatic stress disorder related prazosin. Yes. We got yeah. prazosin. Adding in prazosin, um, prazosin for the nightmares component. Yeah. Anything else, man, with all this? Do you have a pearl? I do. Well, and since we're on this topic today, um, one of the other things, we didn't really even mention this, but one of the things that we also need to go into or evaluate when we're doing our differential diagnosis and you know, initial patient workup is are they on other medications that could worsen 
anxiety or at least have like a stimulant-like effect. And so if you go to our sponsor's app called Pearls, so P-Y-R-L-S, um, and you have the app downloaded, you can pull up a chart that they have called Drugs with Anxiety Symptoms, and they go through a list of you know potential things, obviously like corticosteroids, things like that that we're familiar with, but also they mention like albuterol, amantadine, um, uh, levodopa, um, obviously our illicit substances like cocaine or MDMA, um, other stimulants like amphetamines, nicotine, and then also some things like our supplements, ginseng, um, ephedra, things like that, or, or pseudoephedrine, phenylephrine are all things that we should consider. So he's got a nice, easy to read chart listed out there. And uh, if you're not familiar with this this app I'm referring to, Pearls, it's our main sponsor. So make sure you check them out. Go to pearls.com slash coreconsultrx and uh, you can sign up for a free membership and you'll have access to certain aspects of the app. Plus, you'll get some nice charts that you can download and, and hang on to. And then if you like it, you can always upgrade to the full you know, and unlock the whole, the whole app. Um, lots of great stuff and they've been adding stuff every single month. So make sure that you uh, check them out. Pearls, P-Y-R-L-S dot com slash core consult rx check them out they've been our our main sponsor and uh really appreciate you know their help so now you're done listening i want you to go use the code worry w-o-r-r-y all caps with in the the link in the show notes go to freece.com's website get your credit if you are a unlimited member of the on their platform if not sign up and you won't regret it you'll have all your ce's knocked out probably for a couple of years um if you time it right and uh you know we really appreciate them continuing to partner with us if you do like more of like a lecture style you know format instead of us just kind of ad-libbing some of this stuff then make sure you check out patreon.com slash core consult rx where we have a bunch of uh traditional style lectures for various disease states on there pharmacotherapy lectures and uh, if you have any questions for Cole, myself, or AJ, who's, who's absent today, um, our emails will be in the show notes. You can also reach us on social media on any of the platforms on our Core, core Consult RX, and uh, our number's in the show notes as well. You can text us there directly. Um, other than that, though, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you guys on the next episode. Have a good one.